Good morning or good evening. Greetings from Chiang Mai. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word, you speak to us. Help us to listen and obey. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Christmas pageant was over, or so I thought. In the South Indian village church, young boys dressed as shepherds staggered onto stage, acting dead drunk to the, de- to the delight of the audience. In that region, shepherds and drunkards are synonymous. When the angels appeared from behind the curtain, however, they were shot sober, and the moment of hilarity passed. The wise men came to the court of Herod, seeking directions, and the star led them to the manger where Mary, Joseph, the shepherds and the wise men, and the angels gathered around the crib of baby Jesus. The message has gotten through, I thought. Then, from behind the curtain, came Santa Claus, the biggest boy in class, giving birthday gifts to all. I was stunned. What had gone wrong? My first thought was syncretism. The village Christians had mixed Christianity and Hinduism. Then I realized this was not the case. The missionaries had brought both Christ and Santa. So why was I disturbed? Clearly the message of Christ's birth had gotten through. So too the message of Santa, the bearer of gifts. The problem was that the villagers had mixed, in my mind, what were two different Christmases. One centred on Christ. In it, the climate was warm, the trees were palms, the animals, donkeys, cows, sheep, the participants were Mary and Joseph, the shepherds and the wise men. The other centred on centre. In it, the climate was cold, the trees evergreen, the animals, rabbits, bears and above all, reindeer. And the participants were Mrs. Claus and the elves. Paul Hebert, a mission scholar, writes about this encounter that he had in India. He asks, So, what had gone wrong? Somehow the message that the missionaries had brought was garbled. The pieces were all there, but they were put together wrong. I don't know whether you are amused or horrified by this story. But the truth is that these garbled messages are not only a problem in rural villages. Even people who have been Christians for a long time in an ultra-developed city like Singapore might have some garbled messages that they have heard and are telling other people. For example, did you know that the phrase God helps those who help themselves is not actually in the Bible? We heard last week that our God is a God of missions and God's heart is for all nations to know Him. Can we be sure that the believers in this South Indian village church know God? And what about the missionaries who brought the gospel message? What message did they actually bring and did they know God? Since God's heart is for all nations to know Him, and if we want to participate in what God is doing, the question we must ask is, how is God made known to the world? What is needed for the nations to know God? That is what we are going to talk about today. We will look at a few key texts to see 
that God reveals himself to the world in different ways and what that means for us. Firstly, through the written word, the Bible. Secondly, through the incarnate word, his son. And thirdly, through the embodied word, his people. So, firstly, God reveals himself to the world through the written word. So the theological term for how God makes himself known or how he reveals himself is revelation. So theologians categorize revelations into two types, general and special. So general or universal revelation is available to all people in all places at all times. You can observe the world around you and come to the conclusion that there's something or someone who must have started it all. And the fact that we are moral beings, that we have a conscience, suggests that there is an absolute standard of what is right and what is good. So by observing and reflecting on creation, we can know something about what God the Creator is like. But this isn't enough to show us a full picture of who God is. Through general revelation, we can know about God. But knowing about someone is not the same as having a relationship, right? So, for example, all of us know about our Prime Minister, Lee Hsien Loong. We know what he looks like, how old he is, what schools he went to, what shirts he wears, what cup he drinks from. But how many of us can say that we actually have a personal relationship with him? Right, unless, for some reason, he and you decide to become friends and you go and drink kopi with him every week. Right, not, not very likely. So, creation can tell us something about God, but in order for us to have a personal relationship with God, we need something more. So, theologians call this special or particular revelation. God communicating to specific people at specific ways, in specific times, in a way that is personal and relational. So throughout history, God has revealed himself in a personal way by appearing to his people, giving visions and dreams, speaking through his prophets. And all this is recorded in the Bible. So why do we refer to the Bible as the word of God? It's the written record of God's personal communication of himself to men. Right. The Bible is God showing you who he is. And so the missiologist Ralph Winter said this, The Bible is not the basis for missions. Missions is the basis for the Bible. Right. We often think of it as, oh, where in the Bible does it talk about missions? But actually, it's because of the mission of God. That's why we have been given the Bible, so that we can know him. So in 2 Timothy, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we can observe a few things from this text. Firstly, scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God coming from him, right? But you say, wasn't the Bible written by people like Moses, David, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? Yes, 
And these human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as it says in 2 Peter. So it's, it's not like dictation where the authors are just writing things down like robots. But the Holy Spirit directed their writing in such a way that what they wrote was actually God's word. So sometimes you hear people say, or maybe you yourself have said this, Oh, I wish I could hear God speaking to me. Well, let me tell you that all you need to do is to open your Bible, read it aloud, and you will hear God speaking. Secondly, we can see that it's important that God's revelation is in writing. So the Greek word here used for scripture is graphe, coming from the word to write. So scripture is a fancy sounding word, but it just means writing. Right? So why would God choose to communicate in writing? I mean, God appeared to the Israelites in a pillar of cloud, in fire, sometimes there's a voice from heaven, sometimes he uses dreams and visions. Writing compared to this seems kind of boring, right? But only writing allows all these things to be recorded permanently, to endure across time and space. And that's why we see God telling his people to write things down all the time. So the first time someone writes something in the Bible is in Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the Israelites have just left Egypt and they are attacked by the Amalekites. And so God defeats the Amalekite army as Moses lifts up the staff of God. And then God tells Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. So the written form of God's word gives us an objective record that can be passed down through the generations. Having God's word in writing means that each generation can keep referring back to it. They can know that they are learning and teaching the same thing. There's no game of broken telephone here. And thirdly, scripture comes as one package. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. Not some, but all. We need the whole counsel of God, not just bits and pieces of it. Right, so if God has revealed himself through the written word, how much of it have we actually read? You know, Christians do a funny thing, which is that we don't usually read the Bible as it is meant to be read. Imagine your friend sends you an email, and then you open it, and the only thing you read is the third sentence of the second paragraph. And then you close the email. The next day, you wake up again, you open the email again, and then you read the last sentence of the first paragraph. Yes, you would get a little bit of what your friend is trying to tell you, but it wouldn't be the full message. But that's often how we treat our Bibles. We revere it, but we don't read it. So I want to encourage you, if you have never read the whole Bible through, to do so. Read the parts that you have been avoiding, maybe because you think they are too boring or too weird. It might surprise you. Or read a whole book in one sitting. You know, somebody has counted the amount of time it takes to read through each book of the Bible. You can read the entire Gospel of Mark in, in about 1 hour and 30 minutes. 
So that is about two Netflix episodes. And many of the shorter books can be read in 20 minutes or less. You can read through the whole Bible in a year if you spend just 12 minutes a day reading. And use an audio Bible if you prefer. Right? Most Bible apps have a play button. You just click it and it will be read aloud to you. You know, the Bible in English has been around for about 400 years. The Bible in Chinese has been around for 200 years. But there are still many people in the world who have not had the privilege of hearing God speak to them through His Word. Nearly 2,000 language groups still need a Bible translation. And that's what Wycliffe and other organizations are working on. It's an incredible privilege to be able to read and to hear what God wants to say to us. So let's not take it for granted. The second point, God reveals himself to the world through the incarnate word, Jesus. So going back to the email analogy, say you have a new friend and they send you an extremely long and thorough and detailed email to introduce themselves to you. They tell you their whole life story. And when you finish reading it, you feel like you really know this person, you understand what they are like, but there's still something missing. So, you know, I've been working with these um, co-workers from Malaysia. We spent hours together on Zoom, but I have no idea how tall or how short they are. Well, I was going to visit them in June, then I got COVID, so I couldn't. Very sad. But you know, there's really something missing in the friendship without the in-person element. And so it is with God. In Hebrews, it says, In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So, all previous revelation given through the prophets and the writings point to Jesus as the ultimate and fullest revelation of God. He is the exact representation of God, which means that if you know Jesus, then you know God. So how does God reveal himself? It's through Jesus, his son. He is what we call the incarnation of God. God in the flesh. Or to borrow a phrase from the COVID era, is God in person, God on sight. The Apostle John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So God's Word is His self-expression. And Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, is the revelation of God. And we know Jesus through the written word, not through pop culture, not through our own imaginations, but through the Bible. So, why is it important that the word became flesh, that God became a man, to make God known to specific people at a specific time? What does the incarnation mean for us? It shows us the heart of God. You know, when Hudson Taylor first went to China, 
the journey on the ship took five months. And for a Westerner to live in Asia, there's a huge cultural divide that needs to be crossed. He had to learn to speak the language, change his clothing, change his hairstyle. But actually, you know, this is nothing compared to the divide that God the Son crossed in the Incarnation. Being in very nature God, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is our model for missions. This is the heart of God. So how do we reflect who Jesus is? It's by crossing cultural boundaries, leaving our comfort zone, entering the lives of others just as Jesus entered into our world. God has given us the privilege of participating in what he's doing. Now you may be thinking that cross-cultural missions is for other people, right? Maybe they are more brave or more spiritual. Reaching the nations is for other people. I will reach my neighbours. But God has not given us that option. Certainly the way that we participate in missions may look different for all of us. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have been given the mandate to make God known to all nations. And in Matthew 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, the word nations actually refers to people groups rather than places. So do you know how many people groups there are in Singapore? Is it four? C-M-I-N-O? Chinese, Malay, Indian, others? No. Okay. According to Joshua Project, there are 51 people groups in Singapore. And all the major religions are found in Singapore too. More than 1 million people in Singapore are considered unreached, meaning that the number of born-again Christians in those groups is less than 2%. Meaning, if you are a non-Chinese, non-Angmore person in Singapore, your chances of hearing the gospel from someone from the same ethnic background as you is nearly zero. So I, you, you probably can already think of someone who fits into this category. It's going to take a cross-cultural effort to reach them. And it's going to be awkward. But you don't have to share the whole gospel at one shot, right? You can start by asking and listening. That's what Jesus did. He didn't just start preaching and teaching straight away. Right? As a child, he went to the temple to listen and to ask questions. So listen well, don't assume. And start by praying for them, even if you don't know what to say. You know, these unreached people in Singapore... You don't have to take a plane to be involved in cross-cultural missions. In such a multicultural city like Singapore, the nations are our neighbours. And if God's heart is for them to know Him, how will we respond? So I'm not saying don't go overseas, right? I'm saying if you think that God's calling for you is to stay in Singapore, it doesn't mean that you are exempt from cross-cultural missions. So then do we just give Bibles to people and tell them about Jesus? It doesn't end there, right? 
how would the world see that the good news of Jesus is real? So, the third point. God reveals himself through the embodied word, God's people. So, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is being asked the question, how can we tell if your ministry is genuine or not? Are you legit? Is your gospel legit? Prove it! So, Paul writes, Are we beginning to comment ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. So in Paul's day, people who were travelling would take letters of recommendation so that they could be introduced to someone who could host them and help them. So something like a reference letter or a resume when you apply for a job. And Paul is saying that he doesn't need a letter to prove his credentials to the Corinthians. Why? Because the Corinthian church themselves are that letter. The existence of the community is the proof that Paul's gospel message is genuine. And what is this community like? It's a living letter written by Christ himself. And it's public, it's known and read by everyone. You see, the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant came on tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. So why did there need to be a new one? What was wrong with the old one? Paul is saying here that it was only written. It demanded obedience, but it couldn't produce obedience. The Israelites broke that covenant because they had hearts of stone. They were unwilling to be faithful to God, even though they had direct revelation from God. So we see it's not a matter of logistics, as if they had no scripture. Ultimately, there's a deeper problem, a problem of the heart. And that's why when they read the Old Covenant, it's veiled to them. They cannot see that ultimately it points to Jesus. And that's why God promises to make a new covenant. He says, this is, the, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And in Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So what this is saying here, now the writing of God is no longer on stone. It's no longer just text. The writing of God is on hearts of flesh. So how has this happened? The good news is this. It's not something we can do. It's something that Jesus has done. He is the one who established the new covenant. When Jesus died, he took our sin, he took our hearts of stone. And his resurrection gives us new life, new hearts of flesh. And so Paul continues, Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces 
contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, how are Christian communities a letter from Christ? It's because each of us are being transformed into the image of Christ through the Holy Spirit. In the New Covenant, established by the Incarnate Word, the writing of God is no longer on stone, no longer just words on a page. The writing of God is on hearts of flesh. You become the text that is read by others. It's not just written characters that reveal who God is. It's human characters that reveal God to the world as we change to reflect the image of Jesus. So reading the Bible is not an end in itself. The written word points us to Jesus, the incarnate word, who has established the new covenant so that we can truly embody the word. True biblical literacy is to have God's word written on our hearts. And as we behold the glory of God, as we learn to love and cherish him more, we are transformed to become more and more like him. And this is how we participate in God's mission to make him known. Let us now respond individually to God in prayer.